This episode is sponsored by The Juice, and we are going to do something a little atypical for all of these ads for the next 12 episodes. So The Juice is kind of like the Spotify for content for marketers. So you can explore this beautifully curated and beautifully designed library of resources across different types of media that help you become a better marketer. And instead of just me sitting here telling you why I think The Juice is awesome, we wanted to celebrate marketers who are awesome. So we reached out to a few marketers that we admire in B2B, and we asked them a simple question. What does it mean to be a modern day marketer right now? And every time you hear an opening ad, we just want to play you the response from one of these wonderful people. So here we go. This ad is going to be a little bit longer than the future ads because of this preamble, but here we go. This is from Jason Bradwell. I think a modern day marketer is defined by two traits. First, they have a deep understanding of how B2B buyers actually buy in 2022. And second, they come equipped with the tools and the knowledge needed to bring their organizations along to meet this new status quo. It's a sad fact that a lot, and I mean a lot, of established B2B businesses out there still live with this mentality that marketing's job is just to help make decks look pretty and pump out the odd press release once a year. And then they're left surprised when they miss their revenue targets for the sixth quarter in a row. I think a modern day marketer doesn't accept this. They have this relentless tenacity around shining a light on where customers are actually spending their time, how they're really consuming information, what's ultimately driving their decision making, and then working across a business to build joined up systems, strategies, playbooks that address this new reality. Essentially, a modern day marketer is obsessed with the customer journey, not just the marketing or the sales one. You can learn more about Jason and get some of his best writing, which really is great writing, dedicated to B2B marketers and founders helping them do better marketing. Get some of his writing using the URL in your show notes linking to his website, or you can explore his creator page on the Juice's platform. Thank you to Jason and thank you to the Juice. Hey, it's Jay. And today we're trying something new. It's definitely in line with the same journey we've been on trying to understand resonance. What does it take to resonate, to connect so deeply with your audience that they feel an emotional, irrational bias in your favor, and you get to take them on a journey towards something, some kind of change. Resonance is the most important skill that we can develop as creators and marketers today. But so often we obsess over reach. We talk about the mechanics of generating revenue, and I get it. But no amount of awareness will matter unless you have affinity. And the revenue only comes when people take action. Action that has been sparked by some kind of emotion, some kind of preceding realization that, oh my gosh, this, I need to do this, I need to go with them, they are for me, that is my favorite thing. It all comes back to resonance. And today, We're launching a brand new mini-series inside of Unthinkable to explore something very specific about resonant work to combat a very damaging assumption that we make. It's tiny but potent and powerful. It's Unthinkable, exploring why work resonates and how ours can too. I'm Jay Akunzo. Okay, so as we come back from about a month off here, uh, first of all, thank you for returning or welcome if you're new to the show. Again, we're trying something new. So we've been on this journey to unpack and understand resonance and, and continue to find different pockets of brilliance in creative work. And I think so often we can conflate resonance or creativity or brilliance 
or even just the people we hear on this show, we assume that what this all points to is doing something big. And so it's easy for you or me to disassociate from the people we hear appearing on this show. Or maybe you even disassociate from me hearing me create this show or reading my newsletter. Whatever the case, it's not about going big. It's not about throwing money or resources at a problem. See, resonance can occur, deep emotional moments of connection that sparks action that benefits the individual receiving the work and you. Resonance can occur in the minutiae. So what we've been doing behind the scenes is gathering up a few stories of types of work that are tiny little pockets of creativity that create a big emotional response. And so today, we're starting a three-part mini-series. Get it? Do you... Do you get it? Mini-series, like a mini-series of episodes in a larger show, and also we're exploring things that are mini about the creative work. Look, this is the bet I made for myself, okay, my friend? Like, I, I, the pun is going to have to persist. Uh, if you're in, you're all the way in. Thank you for being a listener and supporter. I am nothing if not myself. Anyways, in this series, we're going to be exploring how mini pockets of created work, tiny little things, techniques, crafts, can actually still yield deep emotional resonance or a big emotional response from those on the receiving end of the work. And throughout this, we're going to show you how tiny moments of creative work can have a really big impact. Our mini-series is going to span four different types of the created work. Comics and illustration, sound design, joke writing, and today we're starting with copywriting. Copywriting is something that most of us, including me, don't often pay a ton of attention to. You know, just the name itself can tip towards the boring, the bland, the unassuming. But it's not. And the writers in the audience who understand copywriting are going, no, it's not, Jay. Come on, give us some credit where credit is due. Well, we're gonna. I'm getting there. Copywriting is the stuff that pulls people in and it makes you realize why you should click a link or subscribe or decide that this company is for me or this individual creator really gets me they see me and i'm going to actually sign this one petition even though i hate petitions normally but this one feels different i'm going to try out this spicy new hot sauce even though i have three at home already because i feel like i'll like this one more for some reason or i'm going to sign up for this workshop or follow that podcast even though workshops and podcasts aren't typically my thing or maybe i'm overrun by too many of them our first mini series story is about someone who knows all about what it takes to write copy for a compelling hot sauce container. Probably. I haven't actually asked her if she's done that. But she understands all the good, the bad, and the very ugly that copy can be. And for this individual, it all started by accident. So I happened upon marketing by accident, and I began my career as a psychological researcher. And... I didn't know it at the time, but I was copywriting. I was doing top of the funnel sales and intake. But at the time, I wouldn't have identified that because psychologists and research labs don't talk to marketers. We believe we are above them. This is Margot Aaron. Margot is a copywriter, a long form writer and an author. I was in charge of putting out flyers to attract uh, people with a major depressive disorder to a study where they could receive free treatment. I sensed, Jay, that something was off about 
the way in which we were trying to attract people. And I just remember thinking one day, I was instructed to put flyers in any place I wanted, but specifically three places. Doctor's office rating rooms, cars <laughs> in parking lots, and um, the cork board in a coffee shop. And there was one coffee shop in particular that I was putting this up, this flyer up in a cork board. And I thought to myself, wow, the courage it would take someone inside of a major depressive episode, which statistically people listening, 60% of you have either experienced this or know someone who has or are actively in a depressive episode. So you know what kind of effort, courage and strength it takes to even get yourself dressed and out of bed and let alone into a coffee shop. And then when you add the shame and stigma that society has on even claiming the title of depressed or depression to the mix, you are now taking a person in a vulnerable situation where they are finally out in public and you are asking them to confront the thing that they are trying to probably avoid or haven't spoken to in public in order to get that help. I mean, something about it felt inherently disrespectful to me and condescending. I thought that can't be right. And I was curious as to why. And that that was the first time I thought there has to be more to this. Something's wrong with the way that we are attracting people. There has to be a better way to say this. The headline we used, y'all mark my word, it said, are you feeling sad, down or low? I cannot think of a more patronizing way to talk to a human being suffering from depression. And had I known then what I know now about how to influence action and inspire behavior and help people feel seen, um, I would have been able to help a lot more people and, and more respectfully. And, it, and that, that is what catapulted me into this field. Here it is once again in our exploration of residents is the focus on helping other people feel seen. We've heard that. We've seen that. That phrase just keeps coming up when we talk about Resonance. And it makes sense because resonance is largely the act of communicating or creating an experience that somehow aligns with other people and helps them feel amplified. We align and we connect emotionally, and that emotion turns into action. So, alignment, amplification, and action. And it starts with helping others feel seen. In the case of Margot, it comes from a flyer that she saw that was not only ineffective, but disrespectful and condescending to the audience. It wasn't working. It wasn't resonating. And this is what got Margot so hyped. You can hear it in her voice. This is what got her to care, learning how to bend the written word to ensure that others care. The way she talks about it feels like kind of magic, but it isn't. It's hard work and being human and a big dose of empathy, which we'll get into all that because there is some fluff surrounding those words. But if you do it right, it just plain works. It connects with other people to write great copy. And since the fateful meeting with that flyer, Margot has built herself into a force to be reckoned with in the copywriting world. She runs a brilliant website called That Seems Important and has taught over 4,000 students the art of copywriting. She's also a really great follow on Instagram, both because she does copywriting breakdowns, which are very educational and also entertaining. She's got a wonderful tone of voice, if you can't tell already but also because she hosts a live streaming show with her co-host, Hillary Weiss, called Hillary and Margot Jam, which is a spinoff from a YouTube series that used to be called Hillary and Margot Yell at Websites. So give her a follow on Instagram. Anyways, Margot has been on a journey to more critically think about copywriting for quite a while now. 
But what about the rest of us? Those of us who have not gone on Margot's journey, maybe because we have not had our transformative meeting with a flyer that we couldn't stand. What can we learn from what Margot has been doing ever since that fateful moment? Well, I wanted to have Margot tell us that story, but before we could get there, we had to parse two related words because inevitably, you can't talk about resonance without talking about its sibling, reach. It always starts with reach versus resonance because people like you and me attract other people who are building with audience in mind, Margot. So people think about reach and that's where they retreat or run to. And so I first had to define what's the difference between the two. So reach is how many see it. Resonance is how much they care. And of course, we're all in the make me care business. In the sciences, this is an important fact for us today. A resonant frequency is when one system's frequency matches the natural frequency of a second, thus amplifying the second. Resonance is literally an energy transfer. So like Mm -hmm. an easy example is if I'm swinging, my my daughter is on a swing and I'm, I'm pushing her on the swing. If I push her at the exact right moment, I am matching her natural frequency. It's like she's about to go forward, but then I push her forward in that moment. I'm going to amplify her more than if I push her if she's coming back at me, I'm providing friction and stopping her, or she's already going forward and I either like barely add anything or I miss completely. So you're matching the natural frequency when you push somebody at the exact right moment. In the same way, uh, one vibration might align with another vibration and the second vibration gets louder and more intense. So resonance literally is an energy transfer in the sciences. So in our work, we can think about two different things to keep this in our minds, alignment and amplification. So others feel deeply aligned with your message and then their thoughts, emotions, and even their abilities feel somehow amplified, which sparks action. So this is the punchline. What is resonance as it applies to creative work? I'm defining it like this. The sudden urge to act, that's the thing we most want, right? So I'm going to lead with that in the definition. The sudden urge to act created by a message or experience, which aligns so closely with your beliefs or identity that your thoughts, emotions, and abilities feel amplified. So while everyone is so obsessed with growing reach, we're all actually in the business of resonance because we're all in the business of sparking action, no actions, no results. So, anything to add or reflect on just before I get to copywriting? Your definition of resonance is my definition of copywriting. Wow. Okay. All right. So, we're (laughs) we're already cooking with gas. I love it. Why? Tell me more. So, copywriting is the strategic use of language, of words, to inspire action. What separates it from other types of writing is it's strategic And it demands that action piece. So where you can have a creative piece that makes someone feel something, that's awesome. That's one type of skill, one type of writing. But it's from that passive reader to active action taker that makes something copy. And in order to do that, you actually need two things. You need to be able to deploy empathy. And then the second one is tension. What Margot just shared is critical to creating resonance in these tiny little pockets of creative work. She shared a simple yet kind of finicky concoction for inspiring action through language. We have to be empathetic to the audience, of course, but we also have to create the feeling of tension. And what you're describing as resonance is what I would call tension, because I would have put resonance in a different definition of like, it makes me feel something and I think about it. And tension, the reason you take an action. 
So tension would be the things that people call persuasion levers. It is the feeling like everyone else is doing it, so now I want to do it. It is that feeling of scarcity or exclusivity that makes you want to jump and take an action. Moving from a passive reading, thinking, feeling position to I'm going to now do something is the power of copywriting. So just to bring that to light a little bit more, if I'm telling a story or I'm describing something, there's a flat way to do it. You know, my favorite example ever is something I made up for a storytelling class I taught last year. Imagine I said to you, this morning I woke up, went down to my kitchen and grabbed the same mug that I grabbed every morning. And on the mug, I read five words that always make me smile. If I speak that way, I'm literally telling you a story about nothing. Like, this is not who will sit on the Iron Throne 10 years into a TV show. This is not a society-changing thing. This is not even one person in their hero's journey. Like, I basically said nothing, but I added a little bit of tension. In other words, I gave you cause to ask a question, which is, what the hell did the mug say? What are the five words? There's, There's another way I could just describe that is, like, this is my morning routine, flat. And so, to me, tension is a storytelling tool or technique. It's something you can proactively add into your existing communication style. And that creates questions, which prompts people to essentially persist. They want to continue with you. And they might see themselves in that tension, or perhaps there's something on the back end of the tension, the resolution that they will see themselves in. But in other words, it's a, it's a tool to grip you and help you proceed with whatever the experience is. And a result of that time spent is resonance. Is like, wow, this story aligns with me because you're describing the tension that I feel, the, the vision I have for how to solve things. So tension is a tool, resonance is a result. I have used the word resonance uh, differently in my copy it, to say that like an idea can resonate, but then you don't do anything without the tension. Totally. I think it's very hard, if not impossible, to resonate without any kind of tension, even if it's implied. It's just not, (laughs) it's really hard to grip people without the the sort of question reeling you in or the desire for something or, you know, again, a story, the carbon element of a story is tension. Just like you can't have life without carbon, you can't have a story without tension. When you were talking about the science of resonance. It's really consistent with the way we teach copywriting. And one of the main tenets of the copy workshop is great copy is invisible. Most people go, okay, how do I stand out? How can I, in the sea of clutter, be the one thing that people notice? And the irony is, the answer to that question is, you don't. In order to stand out, you actually have to blend in. And what you blend into is the conversation going on in someone's head. I love that. Not least of all because of the visual nature of that metaphor, but... It does play against some of the tendencies we have when we write or create anything. We want to stand way out. But when it comes to copywriting, in order to stand out, in other words, in order to be gripping, to serve the reader, and of course yourself or your brand's cause, you have to blend in. You have to blend into the conversation happening in someone else's head. We aren't telepathic, of course, but we are 
human. There's a humanness that she's getting at. The tension of being human, the nagging things, the small frustrations, the moments of feeling slighted or not feeling seen, the desire for something to be easier or quicker or cheaper, and also the resigned acceptance that sometimes it's not. That's what we need to speak to. That's what Margot speaks to. And when you think about it, there's nothing that resonates more with us than the conversations happening in our own head. When that internal narrative is taken into account, all of a sudden, that copy does its job because it has empathy and it plays into the tension of our lives. Speaking of getting into the head of our readers, let's get a little deeper into Margot's head. More specifically, I wanted to put forth a few examples of copy and hear her break down why they're effective. And so uh, you've done this. You've done a lot of copy teardowns, specifically on Instagram. So I actually want to pull up your Instagram where you've saved some of these breakdowns and see if we can go one by one across a few. Can I share one more piece of context before? Yeah. So on the topic of tension, there's an important piece of psychology to understand as we look at assessing copy. First, we need to understand that there is no good or bad copy. There is effective or ineffective. And so it is very difficult to judge a piece of copy if you don't know three things. Who is it for? What was it trying to do? And what is the context? So as we go through the examples, make sure that you are looking through that lens. Who is it for? What is it trying to do? And what is the context? And recognize that if we don't have the data on what someone was trying to do with this piece of copy, all we are doing is conjecture. And that's fine, it can be a wonderful exercise, but I wanna keep us within that frame. The second thing to understand is the reason tension is such an important tool in creating effective copy is because we are cognitively lazy. Human beings are extremely distracted in their brain. Like our brain is busy making sure that our heart is going off and that the big ticket items in our lives are getting done. Like you're worried about your doctor's appointment, calling your mom back, making sure you're saying the right things in the meeting and not looking stupid. So when you encounter a piece of copy, your brain is not actually thinking about the copy. It is lost in thought somewhere else. And one of the things that a lot of businesses do is they create something called a competitive analysis. You always, in trying to write copy, are thinking about, okay, how do we stand out amongst the noise? And here's the psychology piece I want you all to take away. You're only ever competing with one thing, and that is inertia. No one in their right mind is deciding between what four pizza places they would like to eat from that night. There is one pizza place they have in mind. They are deciding whether they should do takeout or not. And so this is the same thing that's happening in your customer's mind. They are deciding whether or not they're ignoring you and moving on with their life, or they're actually going to get up and grab their credit card. And so once you understand that your competition is inertia, then the tools of tension make a lot more sense because what you are trying to do is get someone from a state of inertia and apathy to caring, to taking an action, to overcome that state of inertia, which you need a lot of activation energy for, which is why tension is helpful. So as we look at these examples, I want us to think through the lens of who it's for, what is it trying to do, what's the context, and why do we need the specific type of tension? All right, with that important context out of the way, let's break down a few examples of copy that we assume is really effective. 
and why it works. So the, fir- the first one I wanted to talk through, you have a love affair with the way Nat Geo, National Geographic, writes their headlines. This is on your Instagram. Hi, this is your Wednesday reminder that Nat Geo writes the best freaking headlines in the multiverse. And here's the headline I want to start with. Ravenous wild goats ruled this island for over a century. Now it's being reborn. So one more time. Ravenous wild goats ruled this island for over a century. Now it's being reborn. And the first comment you have on Instagram is, are you kidding me? Because, yeah, (laughs) are you kidding me? Break down why this is effective, not good or bad, effective copy. So let's talk about what a headline like this is trying to do. The action it wants you to take is to click the article and read it. You're receiving this in an email. Presumably you are someone who signed up to receive these emails. So you are inherently interested in the category of perhaps environmental science, perhaps earth science, perhaps travel. Like those are the domains we'll put you in. And most of these topics are extraordinarily tedious and boring. And historically, the way we write about them and the kind of the decision architecture of reading that section in a newspaper or magazine, you get a lot of technical news, a lot of science news, a lot of super nerdy news, which requires a lot of decoding and effort to make interesting. What Nat Geo did was use the tension level of lever of curiosity and uh, gamified this in some ways. Like it turned a boring story <laughs> about biodiversity and ecology and geography and made it into an action thriller. <laughs> and that is the piece that is so ingenious because the framing effect here makes you wonder, like, wait, what? Ravenous ghost? I mean, think of the language, the, the, the colorful language, the vibrancy. Like, you immediately have an image in your mind of ravenous goats, what? (laughs) The juxtaposition of that in and of itself doesn't make sense. And so that creates some dissonance in your head where you're like, hold the phone, like you have to pause and you have to wonder what is going on here. So it provokes a sense of curiosity and curiosity is a tension lover. Just as you explained in your example with the mug, like it takes something that could in, in a different frame be considered boring. Like it could have just said something clearly like here's why goats are dying on this island and no one it it is that assumes an interest in that topic most people don't care why goats are dying on that island right so what they did was they took an effect they framed it in a way that made you curious and and manufactured a plot (laughs) in something that made you want to click and now of course i want to go to you know some people might be thinking that's great Margo and Jay, that's fine. I, I wish I worked for Nat Geo. It's Nat Geo. I mean, they are creative. They are wonderful. So let's go to the exact opposite end of the spectrum in terms of how excited most people would be to write this copy. Let's go to the back of a peanut butter jar and let's go below the nutritional facts to see two lines of copy. Line number one says, ingredients, colon, peanuts. Line number two, contains peanuts. And like, I'm reading that, first of all, the poor copywriter. That's the first thought in my mind. It's like, who has to write this stuff? The second is, this is silly. This is needless. Ingredients, peanuts. Of course, the second line is true. Contains peanuts. But you, Margot, have made a very smart case as to why both of these lines 
are necessary. Why? Has to do with psychology of the reader. Most of us are cognitively lazy. And the way we process information gets stored in different areas of our brain. So we can read ingredients, peanuts, but it's really important for us to get hit again because of the allergen warnings and, and risks to go, okay, y'all, like this is what's happening is your brain, one, doesn't read ingredients. Most people aren't doing that, but a person who is, is probably looking for something. And what you want to do, one, on the legal side, you want to protect yourself, but two, you want to understand the use case. So if our brain is not going to register something, you want to make sure there's a fail safe. This is where the copy is actually being kind and helpful and really useful because there is now no way you can miss this. Where you might think it's redundant, it's actually making your brain go, oh, oh, okay, I should pay attention. Like peanut butter, peanuts, that's an allergen to people. So let me just make sure to log that in my memory. If I'm having someone come over, if I'm buying this for a certain reason, like it just adds one more layer of it helps you as the purchaser make a decision. Yeah. I mean, you can anticipate the way someone would scan it. Some people just know it's routine, it's habit, like they'll scan for an ingredient and other people will scan for, does this contain any allergens? So it's like going to different sections. You're assuming that someone's going to read both of those lines. And even though it is stacked one on top of each other, the answer is probably not. Like it's, it, you mentioned empathy. And I think sometimes people roll their eyes when they hear that word, cause they don't know what it means. Like yeah. a lot of empathy is the ability to anticipate, to understand what they're going through or what they have been going through that led up to this moment to understand the context that someone has, you know, back to the childcare example, if a daycare sends you an, an ex, uh, the example copy you used was like, remember, you need to bring in these three things, bullet, bullet, bullet by this date. The way I feel seen is to go, oh my God, everyone else communicating with me from healthcare providers to extracurricular activities uh, about my child is being so long-winded. Like I feel seen because you probably understood that context that everyone else is bombarding me with needless language and I don't have time yep. to read it all. And you were like, I'm going to skip all that. I'm going to tell you exactly what you need in bulleted fashion, exactly when you need to submit it to me. I'm not going to yes. write out more paragraphs because you don't need that. Like that's yes. empathy. That's putting oh, it in context for your reader. I think the context point is so important here because people think empathy is sympathy or compassion or permitting bad behavior. That's not what we mean. When I use the word empathy, I'm talking about first, putting yourself in someone's shoes, but second, more importantly, being honest about our humanity and meeting someone where they are, not where we want them to be. And most all of us, myself included, want people to be where they are not. So for um, in the case of daycare, what you hear most staff members will say, I already wrote that. You should have seen it in that... 10-page template I sent you 10 days ago. I've heard this a lot. It was written. You should have seen it. But if you're going to come from a, we call it the copy posture, having that empathy of understanding the context in which someone lives and the story they're telling themselves, you will know that it doesn't matter that you wrote it 10 days ago. You know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that that person did not read 10 pages. And even if they did, they forgot. And so if you want someone to take an action, if you want to focus on the effectiveness of your copy, it's not about being right. You can be right. In fact, you probably are right, but that's not going to help you persuade someone. And that's not going to help you help them take the action. You have to meet them where they are to take them where you need them to go and where they want to go. That's empathy. 
These pockets are opportunities for empathy, to remind the reader, the consumer, the person receiving our language that we see them, we hear them, we relate to them. But remember, Margot talked about empathy and tension. So this comes through in a very specific way, not just in copywriting, but in any project we create, if we want to resonate deeply, if we want to spark action from our work. Resonance requires that empathy and that tension. So where does the tension come in? Well, in a recent essay, Margot wrote about the problems with watching the news. Her title, What Happened When I Stopped Watching the News? And in the piece, she makes a very smart case for why being an informed citizen, being a good member of a society, helping change the world for the better, all these things that we believe require us to consume the news on a consistent basis, she took to task. She questioned those assumptions and she said, hey, look, actually, maybe you're better off not watching the news. And here's why. And to the people who have long suspected that, she gave language to the thing that they just sort of felt. Or she gave language to the thing that they didn't feel empowered to speak up about for fear of being ostracized. Either way, she found white space, not in terms of the topic she covered, not what she talked about but how she talked about it. The combination of empathy and the tension that people felt that she either relieved or played off of to springboard people like an elastic band back towards a solution. That's a good use of tension. So it's not just about aligning with other people. It's about aligning in a place where they don't feel overly served, like everybody's already trying to align with them. Here's another example. I'm a longtime content marketer, and initially in, say, 2011, when I started creating content for brands, the phrase, own your audience, don't rent it, was something I heard a lot. And I would go, absolutely, hell yeah, stop building your audience solely on Facebook or LinkedIn or all these third-party platforms that only care about their businesses and their algorithm changes and screws you over. Yes, totally, you're speaking my language. The same way that Margot's readers might have reacted to the piece about the news. But now, in 2022, that advice or that idea has become table stakes. I feel wildly spoken for in that regard. Everybody's saying that. So yes, the idea of owning your audience, not renting it from a social network, that still applies. That still aligns with who I am and what I believe. But it doesn't resonate as deeply. It doesn't create the irresistible urge for me to act because you said that to me. I'm well served there. It's no longer an area of empathy white space. There's no more tension to relieve. But if somebody said something like, stop thinking about reach. No longer should you care about awareness. No longer should you ever do anything focused on reach. It's all about resonance. Well, if I harbored that belief... Maybe I do, maybe I don't. But if I did, and someone gave language to it, that's some white space. You've acknowledged and or relieved some tension. Something was unspoken, and you gave it language. You said it out loud. So that's the interplay between empathy and tension. We can't just align where everybody is already aligning with our audience. Differentiation is about white space, but empathy, white space, not topical, white space, emotional, white space, a place that we can occupy with our audience where they are underserved. So I'd encourage you to read Margot's original piece questioning the value of consuming the news and also a reaction that I wrote called differentiation isn't about topics, how to find actual white space to stand out. I'll link my essay response to Margot's in the show notes along with her original piece. 
in my essay, I try to give us a heuristic we can use to identify that emotional or empathy white space to stand out, to resonate more deeply. The bottom line is this. It's not just about alignment. It's about aligning in a way where people feel underserved. It's not just about empathy. It's about empathy used to relieve tension. And if you combine those two things, the reaction to your work might feel like the reaction to really great copywriting. When someone encounters your copy, they should feel, oh my God, thank you. I totally get this. This this is, how are you in my head? I need this. Where do I push play? Where, Where do I push go? Thank you, thank you, thank you. I need this. So they want to feel seen. They want to feel heard. What makes you stand out is the fact that you blend in. Because the worst thing someone can say about your copy is, wow, this is really good copy. (laughs) because that means that they're not taking the action they were intended to take. And so in line with your definition on resonance being an energetic thing that blends into other energy, uh, this feels really aligned. They feel a rare form of alignment, not just any alignment, but a rare form of it. It's almost like um, someone throwing up their hands and saying, oh my God, thank you. Finally, someone's speaking my language here. Like I felt like I was taking crazy pills. This is how, this is how we run our businesses, really. And Margot speaks up and speaks the truth. Like I'm going to go with Margot. And so the <laughs> gratitude comes from the fact that they've been harboring an idea, a belief, a desire for so long that it's gone unspoken because they either feel unempowered to speak up for fear of repercussions, or maybe they just don't have the language for it. It's a sense they had, but they never really considered how to describe it, how to put form and function to it. And along comes someone like Margot, who does that. When it comes to copy and the art and science of inspiring someone to take an action, I don't want to discount how important this feeling of feeling seen is in context we might find more superficial or silly, but actually really matter. Take the example of how daycares communicate with busy parents. Oftentimes they use a lot of filler language that is passive aggressive, like friendly reminder to bring in your sheets. That's copy because what you want someone to do is take an action. You want them to bring a signed form into school. You want payment so your kid can go to dance class or to do you know soccer practice. And the way that you could create those interactions to write that copy in a way that is both effective and helps someone feel seen is to reflect back at them what the conversation is going on in their mind, but also having empathy for the end user. So someone who is a parent, someone who is busy, someone who is exhausted and doesn't have time to read would appreciate and feel seen if you wrote three bullet points that said, remember, we need this, this, and this by this time. Thank you so much. Click here. Here are the links. And to you, my listener friend, if you don't have children of daycare age, let me just inform you, that is not what daycares do. They don't give you simple bullets, even though that's exactly what you need because you are constantly stressed and multitasking and rushed in every element of your life and you haven't slept the freaking forever and you have no idea what they're trying to say and all this gobbledygooky language that they're using in paragraph upon paragraph and really it's just one simple task and they could just tell you that and give you a simple link, but instead they're driving crazy with these lengthy emails. <clears throat> um, uh, sorry about that. Back to Margot. By simply being something 
that simplifies the process for you, that does the work for you, and that sees you as a parent and says, without saying it directly, right? We know that you're busy. We know you don't have time to read. Here are the links that you need, and here are the things that we need from you, and here's the dates that you don't have to search for now. And so I think there are other ways that we can communicate and help people feel seen without making it feel like it needs to be heavy and deep. This idea of resonance applies in the very tiniest pockets of the created work. And so whether that's writing jokes, writing copy, creating a single, you know, square graph or chart that conveys something, something clever, something insightful, a cartoon strip. And what I don't want people saying is, oh, it has to be some grand sweeping gesture. It has to be a massive novel of a project. No, it can be the tiniest, most economical use of language and experience possible. And that brings us to on January 6th, 2022, you wrote an article titled, Write Copy You're Proud Of. What does that mean, copy you're proud of? So we have an exercise in the copy workshop where I ask students to write an ad the way you think you're supposed to sound as a marketer and as a copywriter. And then I say, okay, now rewrite it as yourself. And it unlocks them. The copy gets 10 times better. But there is something that happens in our brain where we think we need to sound like a marketer. We think we need to sell. We think we need to be duplicitous and loud and boisterous and pushy and interruptive. So there should be no such thing as copy you're not proud of. But the way we are conditioned to think about this topic is icky. It's pushy. It's boastful. It is making people do things they don't want to do. You can't make people do things they don't want to do. Ask anyone with a teenager. Had they cracked this problem, we wouldn't have teenagers misbehaving. You can only help people do things they already want to do. And to figure out what they want to do, you have to have empathy. You have to see them as a person. And that's what makes the copy really powerful. And it breaks my heart when I think of how many people feel like they need to be something they're not for their copy to work. Because the thing that can actually make your copy the most effective is for you to tell the truth. And the more you can tell the truth and the more you learn how clear is kind and you can deploy tension generously and that you can, you can tell someone something without it being boastful while still adding a credibility indicator to what you're trying to say. And I think it's so much easier for someone to say, what is like a templated approach to writing copy to sell somebody? Because I can do that no matter who I am or my life experience. I can do that. I can adopt this hack and this simple blueprint. And you don't teach that. In fact, you challenge that. And you really do prioritize, you know, the person on the other end asking the right questions, thinking better about who's on the other end, the people on the receiving end. You basically talk about the three foundational steps to persuasive copy, which don't sound like some kind of formula, but sound like questions. The first is, what is their perspective? In other words, the first step is, quote, being able to take the perspective of someone who isn't you. That is step one. So that's so important to the way you teach copy. And I guess my question is, can that be learned? And if so, how? Absolutely. The good news is you have this de facto in your DNA by being human because all day long you are interacting with people. You have to deal with your mother. You have to deal with your brother. You have to deal with your kids. You have to deal with your staff. In every one of those interactions, you are using this skill. It's how you decide what you have for dinner with your spouse, right? You want Chinese food. They want Italian. How are you going to meet in the middle? And how do you know that you're not actually talking about Chinese food and Italian food? You're talking about 
a power dynamic for some people. For others, it's showing love, right? I'm gonna get what my wife wants because I love her. These are stories we tell ourselves, but these are the skills that we have been honing our entire lives. And when we lean on something like a template, it robs you of the opportunity to tap in to that intuition, to that knowing, to that humanity of being able to see the person on the other side. Eugene Schwartz says this in the first page of his book, Breakthrough Advertising, or maybe preface of his book, um, that there is no such thing as a headline you can use twice or a template. There is only the market as it stands right now and your specific product and finding where the two intersect. And that is what makes it a breakthrough. It's being able to trust yourself because what's really going on when people look for a template is they're going... I don't believe that I have the capacity or the tools to do this, so I need to lean on something else. When truly what you're doing is you're afraid of being wrong. You're afraid of having a headline that won't work. And the only way to get to a headline that will work is to try 50 things that might not work. As professionals, I get it. We want something that feels like a guaranteed win, some simple template or formula or blueprint. But I actually think more important than blueprints, in other words, say this this way, are frameworks, heuristics, reminders to ourself that here's a technique that we can use if our unique situation calls for it. Here's a reminder of the interplay between empathy and tension. These things are not blueprints. It's not here is the exact house that you're building, build it according to this spec. That assumes too much that I would know your exact specifications, your exact situation, your exact audience. But really that's disallowing for any customization to the human. In other words, humans are messy. We have to understand that. We have to understand the emotional side of it all. And so I can't give you a blueprint. This will work guaranteed every time. To write copy is to resonate with the messiest of creatures, the human being. And so of course, we need to customize it. We need to tailor it. We need to wield frameworks like empathy plus tension and all the different frameworks or heuristics you've heard Margot talk about or any you can learn online. The closer it seems to a blueprint, the further from reality it gets. We are the architects and we have to build an experience, whether it's grand and long running or something tight and compact like copywriting. We have to bring forth some kind of moment, experience or story that others we hope to resonate with can actually see themselves in, despite being a human, a walking, talking bag of nuance and messiness. And you can only do that through trying things that might not work. And that's the thing that's so frustrating about templates, that it allows for people to be, to be lazy and, and to abdicate responsibility for their work and write copy they're not proud of. Because if it doesn't work, they can go, not my fault. And I believe that if we have any way of moving forward, that we have to write copy that we are proud to put our name on and say, I wrote that. I wrote that. And I meant what I said. And even if it didn't work, you can try something new. Copy lives on the internet or in an ad or really everywhere. But it, it's, it doesn't have to be so scary. And you mentioned before, a lot of this is trial and error. And I think a lot of companies or clients, if you're hiring a freelance writer, the screws turn in people's backs and it has to work. Everything you do, I think this is the most bonkers sense, this implied and sometimes overt command from the corporate world. This is insane. It makes no sense that, that this is the way work plays out. Every single thing we try has to work, seemingly. 
And what that does is it just limits you to things that have done in the people have done in the past that got okay or good enough results. It's like this is certain to be mediocre. Great. So now you're just making it harder on yourself. You're never setting yourself up for greater success at all. And even then, it's not a guarantee because there's so many problems with best practices applied to your specific context. So when yep. someone approaches something and say, and they say, I have to write the copy that will absolutely convert people, they're removing the chance to learn. And what you wrote in a 2019 article, you know, just I think hit me like a ton of bricks. And I just want to read it and have you respond to it. You wrote, your favorite companies are doing this. In other words, the trial and error and trying 50 different ways. I've been behind the scenes of many of them, and they all have the same traits. They have no brand voice guide, no templates or frameworks. What they have is a culture where they trust their employees to figure shit out. They're allowed to play. If I'm a copywriter or a writer of any kind, what is my role in actually creating that culture? Because it's one thing to say, oh, go find a better boss. I know that's not realistic for a lot of people. That's my flippant response. But say for a moment, I believe in this company. We need to improve our culture. I'm a writer, right? So often copywriters are treated as last mile ticket systems. Put some words on it. It's like a designer. Make it pop, right? Awful, awful treatment of creative people, especially in these roles where it's like last mile. It's designed to convert the thing that's been built over time by other people. You don't feel empowered to speak up and change that culture. Is it as simple in your mind as going to find the right culture where you're allowed to play or can you influence that somehow? I actually think it's about asking and answering the question more honestly, who is it for? Because for the majority of copywriters, who it's for is your boss. And if that's the metric, then your copy that you claim didn't convert that is really flat and a rip off of someone else's template actually did perform quite well if your boss is happy with you. It is important for us to ask ourselves who is the consumer of the copy and how are we judging what worked. I'll never forget when one of the first times it was one of the biggest clients I had ever landed, the CEO called me up so furious that an email had not performed as well as predicted. And I thought that is not possible. I had tested the email. It had gone through a bajillion edits. I approved it. And I went back and I looked at the email. The CEO changed the subject line without telling me. And that was the moment that I realized my job was not actually to make the email work. My job was to get the CEO to trust me or just make them happy and let them see the results of their work. It wasn't for the end user because most of us copywriters are focused on the end user. We are thinking about the audience. We are thinking about the customer. So I think it starts there that we can be honest about who it's for and judge ourselves accordingly. The good news about copy is, you know that saying, 50% of my marketing's working, trouble is I don't know which 50%. Copy is usually that 50%. And so you have an opportunity to reframe things um, when someone challenges you. And instead of explaining why you're right, you can deploy your own copy tools, meet them where they are. What are they actually afraid of? The skill of, of empathy and listening to what people don't say to figure out why they are really so committed to certainty and then pointing them to the results. In December 2021, you wrote... 
I'm never going to be able to stop sleazeballs from writing lazy, manipulative content on the internet. What I can do is help you see through the bullshit, make you smart enough to see that when it seems too good to be true, it's because it is. With copywriting, when you become obsessed with the latest hack, tactic, or tool that will unlock the quote-unquote key to conversion, you're missing the point. So what is the point? The point is helping people feel seen. That's it. That is it. It's, it's finding a way to connect with the human being on the other side of your words. Because that's the thing people forget when they're obsessed with scale and reach and numbers, is that behind those numbers is a person. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was written and produced by Alana Nevins with editing support from me. If you had any thoughts or questions on the episode, this show, or my work overall, email me, jay at unthinkablemedia.com. I'm also at jayaconzo on Twitter and really responsive there. If you like today's episode, consider subscribing to my free newsletter, Playing Favorites. Every other week, I write a new story to help you elevate your creative work without magically adding more resources. Other readers include creatives and marketers from brands like Adobe, Shopify, Salesforce, and Red Bull, plus thousands of entrepreneurs, freelancers, and independent creators. Some readers have been with me since 2015, and it's the most shared project that I create. Check your show notes for a link, or you can subscribe at jayaconzo.com. And while you're there, explore other projects from me, like my books, show development services for brand clients, and small group coaching for creators and marketers. That's all at jayaconzo.com. I'm back soon with a brand new episode of the show. Until then, keep making what matters. See ya. Special thanks once again to the sponsor of this episode, The Juice. Again, they're like the Spotify for B2B content. You can use them to find and follow really great thinkers in B2B marketing today. You can get their best resources through tailored suggestions to you based on your profile on The Juice, which is a totally free platform to use. And I even have a creator page of my own over there. If you like what Jason Bradwell had to say at the very top of this episode, you can find his creator page over on The Juice using the link in your show notes. And again, you can sign up for their platform totally for free. Go to thejuicehq.com or check your links in your show notes. 